0: Okay, prepare, propeller beanies on. Let's go. Coming to you live from San Jose, California in the 2018 World Science Fiction Convention, it's Gary Wolf and Jonathan Stroud with two of our very favorite analog writers, Andy Duncan and Alec Navalli on the Good Street Podcast. And here we are. And uh, Okay, analog writers. Now,
1: Alec, I know you're not only an analog writer, you're now a writer about analog or about sounding...
2: Andy, have you ever published an analog before at all? No, this is my debut this summer. You know, It only took me however long since Clarion West, 1994. <laughs> now, to be fair, I have not been inundating them with submissions all this time. But,
1: but the, there's a good reason why this particular story
2: had to go to analog, wasn't there? Uh, since it is about the founder of analog, in effect, John W. Campbell, Jr., mm-hmm. as a fictional <laughs> character. When, when Jim Gunn and I talked out the idea when he innocently said, what are you working on? And I told him this idea, mm-hmm. and he happily supported it. Uh, he then said, you should finish it, and it will, it will not only be a good story, it will be an Andy Duncan story. And when you're finished with it, send it to Analog. And he waved his hand airily. And <laughs> a sort of magic gesture. He waved his hand and said, And no power will prevent their taking it. (laughs) And so Jim Goen was right again. Well, how about you, Alec? I mean, you've been writing for an analog for for some while
0: now.
3: Yeah, well, it's it's kind of funny. So um, 15 years ago, I I sent uh, a story to Stan Schmidt, and he took it, which Mm -hmm. was fantastic, very encouraging. And it was like, this is great. And uh, I sent a second one probably six months later, and he turned it down. I said, okay, well, I guess science fiction is not for me. Mm-hmm. So I retired. <laughs> Looking back, it seems kind of silly, because um, I, was, I was one for two, which isn't bad. Right. Um, and so it took me another probably four or five years before I, I started to write on a regular basis. But um, I probably published about a story or two a year there for the past ten years. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I guess given what we're here to talk about, and all jokes aside, you know, I should say we're here to talk about uh, about John W. Campbell, about astounding, about the major new book about astounding that Alex written for Fairwood Press, right? Uh, no, it's Harper Collins. Harper Collins. Harper Collins. Okay. Like well, a book about Day it, Street is that's a, an imprint of Harper Collins, which I
3: don't think I'd ever seen mm-hmm. before. Day Street tends to publish uh, books on popular culture, okay. uh, so this is a little bit outside their wheelhouse. But luckily, I mm-hmm. found an editor who was willing to take a chance, and it came out great.
0: So I guess my, my the question is. What happened? How did you get here? I mean, I want to come around to how you became, you know, your own thoughts about Analogue too, Andy, but just to sort of, how did you come to be writing a book about
3: Astounding? So I had written for Analogue for a while, and, um, you know, I love Analogue. It's, it's been a great place for my short fiction. And um, I've uh, also written some novels. And um, uh, after my third novel came out, my agent said to me very gently that it didn't seem quite like a slam dunk that we would get a fourth mm-hmm. uh, book. Uh, and he suggested uh, that I should try nonfiction because that's kind of what he does uh, uh, as well. And um, I, I thought to myself, what is it that I can, I can talk about? What is it that I can write about that seems you know suited to my background as, as a writer? And you know, astounding and analog was one of the first things that came to mind. And um, my initial impulse was to actually write a book where I just sat down and read through every issue of uh, astounding for uh, over many years and wrote a critical study of it. Uh, which I think would be a, a great book for somebody else to write, um, but within like probably just a day or two of uh, starting to look into that, that subject, I realized that there had never been a biography of John W. Campbell, and to me, this fact is still flabbergasting. If you know anything about Campbell, about his background, you know his importance to the genre, and just his interest as a human being, you're like, this is a great book. I mean, this is a book that has to exist, and I figured I'm available. Uh, you know, I have
1: the right resume, so I may as well do it. Yeah. But there is also, the the, the full title of the book is astounding Let me see John W. Campbell, you left Junior out of the title as I recall, John W. Campbell, Robert A. Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction.
3: Uh, yes, although it's Asimov, Heinlein, Hubbard. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: I'm just trying
3: to help our... Thanks hard. for playing. I'm trying to help our listeners who are going to look at this up on Amazon later. Uh, you you have to answer in the form of a page. question from now on. Um, oh. But, uh, yeah, so, so the story there is that I, I thought a Campbell biography was a, a, an excellent idea for a book. Uh, I wrote up a proposal that was about 75 pages long where I, I kind of pitched the idea of Campbell. And um, it uh, got some interest but the editor that um, I ended up going with at, at Day Street at, at HarperCollins uh, suggested that Campbell is not a famous enough figure to attract a, a mainstream readership. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and she asked me, can this be a book about three or four writers? And I said, well, you start with Campbell, you take that circle and expand it ever so slightly. And the first three names mm-hmm. that fall into that net are Asimov, Heinlein, and Hubbard. And she said, sounds good. Uh, okay. So, you know, and, and that was an amazing note that really changed the direction of the book and I think expanded the potential audience uh, mm-hmm. enormously. And it ended up being um, a bigger
1: and more ambitious book than I had actually planned. But Campbell is still at the center of I it. Mean, he's, yes. He's, he's, in a sense, the tragic hero of the whole thing. Yeah, his arc is so
3: fascinating. So it just as, like, the backbone for a book like this, you know, it was perfect. And you follow Campbell, and it brings in all kinds of fascinating figures from his personal life, from the... Science fiction community at that time, Um, so he's he's a natural protagonist for this kind of story. Mm.
2: When did you first become aware of Campbell, Andy? That's hard to remember. (laughs) Um, I've uh, I was an obsessive reader as a kid, and we could just stop there at the the, my beloved librarians at the Lexington County Circulating Library in Batesburg, South Carolina. (laughs) who when I was eight or nine and had read all the children's books and all the middle grade books mm-hmm. and segued into the adult stacks, uh, there was, a, there was a, a conversation between the librarians and my mother about about what Andy could read next, you know, in the adult shells. And it was decided, I don't know why, it was decided that it would probably be all right the murder mysteries and the science fiction books. Okay. <laughs> and so, right. so, so for years, I just walked up and down the aisles looking for the little magnifying glass sticker that said crime fiction mm-hmm. or whodunits. Yeah. And also the little rocket ship yeah. sticker that indicated right. science fiction. And and uh, some of the many of those books were by the aforementioned Asimov and Heinlein, but many of them were also uh, anthologies and mm-hmm. a, uh, of of canonical uh, texts and like theme anthologies, you know, best of analog mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And so and and then I got interested as I got a little older in. Uh, Harold Ellison's Dangerous Visions anthologies, and mm-hmm. all those, and, and Asimov's memoirs, and all those extensive uh, autobiographical, you know, introductions and afterwards and so forth. And here was Campbell, Campbell, Campbell showing up all the time, and all these, all as, mm-hmm. as sort of the the center of this whole circle. So, so just my fascination with. Science, twentieth-century science fiction, up to yeah. that point, got me interested very early on yeah, in, sure. in that in that whole crowd, yeah. basically.
0: Because Alec, I mean, in many ways, I mean, this crowd is the history of 20th century science fiction, isn't it? I mean, a, a real, the core of it, this is where it starts. So well,
3: certainly, certainly one plausible version of that story, yeah. of how, how science fiction evolved. Um, I mean, Asimov famously called Campbell, like, the single most powerful force in science fiction ever, and I think that's kind of been the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Um, and I think you can make a strong case for that. Um, there are other figures who don't end up in the book, uh, who you might say are equally important, people like Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. or Arthur mm-hmm. Clarke, because they weren't Campbell authors in the way that Asimov and Heinlein were. And so the book is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be this one thread of the story of science fiction, and the Campbell thread is a central one, a very important thread. Mm-hmm. But obviously, because it could only be one volume, it had to be a certain length, you know, I had to end up you know, neglecting or cutting, you know, writers who I would have loved to have talked about at length, just
1: because they didn't intersect with, with Campbell's story. Yeah, there was another, for example, there was a book several years ago by Brian Stableford. On the scientific romances, a history of British science fiction, uh-huh. and that's a line from from Stapledon. I and mean, while all this stuff was going on with Campbell, I mean, actually John Wyndham, I guess, did sell to the pulps under the name John Bain and Harris. But there was this whole tradition that involved the John Wyndham novels, John Christopher. So his argument was, there's a separate history of science fiction apart from Campbell. And yet, when you talk to people like Brian Aldiss, he said, "No, Campbell was the one we all wanted to sell to, even if we were in England." <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, one challenge for this book was making it, you know, a manageable length because, um, I mean, the first draft was twice the length of the book, which is 400 pages. Mm-hmm. It's a big book. And, um, you know, I, you should sort have of realized that, you know, it takes 400 pages just to tell Campbell's story and the story of Astounding. So mm-hmm. you don't even get into, like, what other cults are doing. It's all about American science fiction. There's nothing mm-hmm. about, you know, uh, other parts of the world. But just to tell this one central thread in a, in a you know, comprehensive way which requires a lot of
0: time and space. And- so two-part question: mm-hmm. When you started this, before you actually started to research, did you have a view, a, a version of the astounding story in your head? And at the end of it, how different was it?
3: Um, honestly, I, I did not come in with any preconceived notions about uh, Campbell or astounding, except that this is clearly a, like an excellent story for someone to mm-hmm. do research. And you know, one thing I would say um, about the history of science fiction is that um, you look at biographies of major figures in science fiction, uh, and you know, they tend to be written by fans. Right? They tend to be written by people who are willing to devote themselves to the time it takes to, to write a book like this. And, and normally they, they have like a vested interest you know, in, in their subject matter. In my case, I love science fiction. I've written it for a long time. But I was not a science fiction scholar. I, I was not someone who had read a lot of these stories from the golden age. And so I, I kind of went in without you know, an agenda or you know, I, I just wanted to kind of figure out uh, for myself, looking at primary mm-hmm. sources and at these stories as they originally appeared, what actually was happening you know, uh, during this period. Yeah. So you know, I had to make a list of several hundred novels and stories that, <laughs> that I, I you had, had to read to figure out what was going on. And again, you know, just to figure out what's going on in an astounding and one magazine out of out of dozens, you know, it takes a long time. And uh, trying to figure out, you know, what what letters are available and what other documents are available. And so I think the fact that I was able to go in without a lot of preconceived notions actually helped the book uh, be a little more objective about these people. Because one thing I should I should point out is that you know this book. Uh, obviously takes their importance for granted, but it's very critical. It's very critical of of these four figures and, um, I think, uh, questions uh, aspects of their careers in ways that you don't tend to see from books written from uh, within the fandom. So there are no hagiographies? Yes. I mean, there there are some excellent biographies that I I use as sources Mm -hmm. uh, that... Uh, have amazing you know material, but which are you know you have to take with a grain of salt because they're written by fans for fans, and so they tend to question. They tend to um, take versions of certain events uncritically. You know, they they tend not to question aspects of the genre right. that. Um, have been been verified. You know, everyone has their own version of, you know, what science fiction is or what happened during Mm -hmm. a certain period and, um, you know, you have to scrutinize these stories because they're embellished over time, they're they're passed around, you know, and there are a lot of apocryphal
1: or, you know, dubious stories about these people that you have to kind of sift through to get to what actually happened. I think you're being an outsider helped because uh, the the amount of research you did was astonishing. One of the things that impressed me just was a footnote. There are 80 pages of notes in this book we should mention. Yeah. And... uh, one of them is when you know Campbell was always claiming to be a nuclear physicist, and you wrote to the registrar at MIT to get his records. Yeah, well, well, so thought he was an undeclared major or something. Yeah, yeah, well, well,
3: okay. So this is my first nonfiction book, uh-huh. right? My first biography, and one thing I, I kind of did was like you know ask myself, what would a biographer do? You know, uh-huh. what, what you know, what would a, a uh, responsible, systematic biographer do? That includes. Getting Campbell's college records includes mm-hmm. writing to his high school and seeing if they have anything in their yearbooks. You know, this is stuff that is kind of par for the course for, you know, literary biographies of, you know, if you read a book about Saul Bellow or John mm-hmm. Updike, you know, this is what you expect, right? And, and there hadn't been as much of it for, for science fiction. So with me, it was just trying to do my impersonation of, you know, what a biographer <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
1: in this field should be doing. Which is the same thing, actually, that Julie Phillips did in writing the best mm-hmm. biography of any science fiction writer. She didn't know much about science fiction, but she was a reporter, and she knew you have to go to the. And she dug up stuff that nobody had ever known about uh, James Tiptree. Um, but one of the one of the anecdotes in the book, which is fascinating because this relates to Andy's story, uh, is a lot of this is part of the folklore of science fiction anyway. You know, the, the business about the atomic bomb and being investigated, and the business about the Manson cult and Heinlein. But we know now that Campbell was at Duke University after having. Not quite flunked out of MIT, um, and he was there at the same time that J.B. Ryan was doing his ESP experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and eventually wrote a book called New Frontiers of the Mind.
2: Which guess what? That title. That's right. Uh, yeah, so that's the title of my novelette in in the July August issue of Analog. Yeah, alongside an excerpt from uh, from from Alex's book. Um, yeah, we know that. Uh, although uh, Campbell was there at the time as a student and that he did participate in some of these uh, tests that Ryan's assistants were like administering all over campus as, mm-hmm. a, sort of, as a sort of fad at the time. But uh, there is a letter from Campbell, the sort of smoking gun In the 50s, in effect, a fan letter to Ryan saying, you and I are engaged in the same great work, basically. (laughs) And he says, you don't know me, but I actually participated in a couple of the the test runs when I was a student. (laughs) So we know that they didn't have like a personal relationship. But the moment I read that letter... Uh, I thought, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be great if they had had that relationship? <laughs> and how would that have gone? You know, young Ryan and, you know, and the even younger Campbell as an undergrad and a newlywed. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, the, the trying to assemble the sort of John W. Campbell origin story where he had already had a, a great success uh, selling space operas to the pulps. But was trying to like chart his own way and declare independence from his dad and so forth. Wouldn't that be fun? And I <laughs> thought if they had actually you know had some interactions there in the layout. but you I had, was often running. You had him apparently being more successful than he really was in reading the cards. <laughs> yes because because uh, there were if you read through Ryan's book New Frontiers of the Mind or any of the other histories of the, the parapsychology layout in Durham, uh, which still exists. It's oh, had good. various names and various iterations through the years. Uh, but the, uh, but if you read through that, there were all these occasional uh, uh, ideal subjects who seemed to have a remarkable facility for, for uh, uh, seeing the outcome of the card mm-hmm. runs. The, the, the famous ESP cards that many people, the Zener cards that yeah, many right. people are familiar to, from the opening scene of the original Ghostbusters, <laughs> Bill Murray is like leading some poor sap through through a run of these things and uh, and flirting with with the other student at the time. But, Al- but, yeah, but Al- go ahead. But but but, but the. Uh, um, but, yes, yeah, sometimes people would have these amazing runs on the cards. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, if you keep doing the runs, eventually that falls away. And then wow. the, the amazing, because it's all probability. And as, as a, as a um, uh, oh, my goodness, her name just flew out of my head, science fiction writer, uh, mm-hmm. biologist, has been to Antarctica. Um, Joan, Joan Swanzuski. Thank you very much. Joan Swanzuski and I talked a long time about wow. this, and Joan's terse assessment of Ryan's lab in the history of parapsychology was that we didn't know the math, and once our math got better, the effects went away. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but so I decided it would be fun to have to have uh, uh, Campbell as one of these amazing test subjects Mm. you know because that would so get at this whole notion Campbell eventually came up with or developed over time as Alec documents Mm. about you know what the next stage is in human development and so forth and the great progress that is within our grasp Mm. if we can only solve the the problems well he
1: apparently and this comes up again and again even before Dianetics was obsessed with the idea of psychology becoming a hard science yeah Uh, and It always amazed me that... that, that One of the things that always puzzled me, and the Ryan story helps uh, explain it, is with with Heinlein and Asimov, who are basically hard science fiction, engineering science fiction writers to that extent, there are all these psionic stories, all these mind-reading stories, all these uh, Van Vogt kinds of stories, that the one thing that didn't seem to fit in the hard SF of Astounding was all this psychic power stuff. Well, this kind of goes back to something that Jonathan asked
3: earlier, which was what kind of surprised me or how did my view of Campbell change in the course of doing uh, this book. And um, one thing that I, I was struck by was, you think about what Campbellian science fiction is supposed to represent, the sort of the hard science fiction, yeah. the competent man, the engineer as the hero, which is true to some extent. But there's also this mystical streak in Campbell's work that is there from the very beginning. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the Ryan story ties into that. You know, Campbell talks about... Uh, the Evil Eye and talks about okay. you know telepathy mm. and if you look at Unknown, which uh, the, the fantasy mm. magazine they published uh, for a few years at the same time as the Golden Age of Science Fiction, you know he he talks you know with a straight face and editorials about you know the untapped pop- potential of the um, the human brain. Uh, you know Heinlein's mm. Lost Legacy uh, is based on a Campbell editorial that, that talks about you know the unused parts of the brain must have a use and, and this stuff is there like 1940. Yeah. and mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of part of uh, you know, Campbell's vision and it, it kind of stays in the background until you know the late 40s when, when
1: Hubbard and Dynetics becomes sort of the, the focal point of the magazine. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that you do in the book, which I think is fascinating is you talk about uh, some of the women who have been not well treated in previous biographies uh, and Donia Campbell and, uh, and Leslie Heine in particular uh, because, well uh, the I, I think we, I think I can say this, we said it several, but the, the, the Patterson biography seemed to take um, Virginia Heinlein's word about Leslin. And in, in your account, looking at the letters, Leslin was virtually a collaborator with the early Heinlein.
3: Yeah, I think that comes out very clearly. And Heinlein says it explicitly in speeches and correspondence. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, one of the most amusing letters that I found that doing research for this book was one that Heinlein wrote to Campbell after Pearl Harbor. And he was trying to convince Campbell to enlist in some capacity. And I think Campbell was afraid that if he left the magazines, that Astounding and Unknown would, would, would go under. And Highline says that Donia could do as good a job or better uh, <laughs> as you uh, at running the magazine with Lesley. He, he said that you know Lesley and I have always been collaborators, and the two of them could put out a great... Magazine for the Duration. And that, to me, just gets at um, sort of the, the truth about
1: the role that these two women played in their husband's career. There's a, Andy, there's another great alternate history story where,
2: where, 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 right, where, where right. Campbell and Heinlein refer to Donya and Leslie. Right. Well, well, I was delighted to get Donya in as a major character in my story. When, when, and then I also realized that Ryan's wife, Louisa Banks-Ryan, mm. Was in effect his partner in the lab and in life and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, Donya and John eventually divorced, but the Rhines did not. Uh, and so suddenly, I realized that my story was about these two couples. So it became mm-hmm. an almost a Shakespearean sort of comedy structure, you yeah, know, yeah. Of, of like the two newlyweds and the two the the older couple, both of them like mutually obsessed, you know, uh-huh. partners in these odd odd things, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Donya was a was a, a, a very sharp person in her own right, and has and has never gotten mm-hmm. until Alex until Alex's book. So far as I know, has never gotten her due uh, in any of these any of these histories.
1: Well, in a sense, the history of science fiction has been written by boys,
2: yeah, uh, and I, I think
1: that it comes across. And mo- you mentioned the fan biographies, of which there are a lot, and they're enormously valuable because these people do. It, 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 tons and tons of research. The problem is all the research has to be packed into the book in a haphazard fashion. And I've read biographies of Bradbury biographies of Eric Frank Russell that do this. They're great resources, but there's no narrative to mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned a Shakespearean comedy structure, I was thinking, Alex, that you, this, this is where your fiction writing must come in. There's almost a Shakespearean structure to, to astounding. I mean, you've got an Iago figure, certainly. <laughs>
3: Yes, yes. Campbell's Life, you know, has this amazing arc to it that, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't think I impose. I think, I think it comes out of, you know, the material that yeah. I have. Um And, you know, my background is, as, as a novelist, I, w- I was very conscious of trying to make this a book that would be, you know, entertaining and engaging, mm-hmm. even for, for casual fans for non-fans, in the way that, you know, a great biography can be. And I think the fact that I was um, going through like a, like a larger publisher uh, imposed this kind of pressure on the, on mm. the book to you know, not be too long, to stay mm. focused, to have like a clear narrative of, uh, like through line. And, and I think that was actually very valuable when it came to clarifying my thoughts about what this book uh, was
0: about. Just so we don't uh, lose to people who aren't familiar with the story of Heinlein. Campbell and astounding. What is the arc that you saw as when you researched it?
3: So, so Campbell um, was the editor of Astounding Science Fiction for thirty-four years, and I would say about fifteen of those years are what you would call the golden age, um, which is uh, defined as the the moment in which science fiction kind of emerged from uh, being a a, like a pulp genre uh, that you know had sort of poor characterization and bad science and, and all these. Defect to one where at least the, the writing was marginally better. Uh, there was interest in characterization, interest in ideas, and um, you know, it, it's an evolution that I think would have happened eventually in some form, right? What happens uh, in you know the evolution of any genre is that you have one generation of writers who come in, comes in kind of opportunistically, like the the first generation of pulp writers who are kind of writing for the money, and then the next generation are fans who read those stories growing up and, and have their own ideas and kind of kind of build upon. Uh, you know, the, the innovations that, you know, they, they, they saw in the predecessor. And uh, this would have happened without Campbell in some form. But Campbell happened to be the seminal figure who uh, was in the right place at the right time to uh, control the direction the genre took. And his, uh, after he became an ed- ed- editor, you know, he was an excellent writer. He wrote some of the best science fiction stories that I've ever read. But um, he preferred to give ideas to others. He preferred to kind of use a as a platform where he could kind of give ideas to 20 writers and have them working for him you know, uh, at the same time. And um, you know, people like Asimov, Hubbard, and Heinlein uh, were you know, his, his collaborators, his partners. And, and uh, together, along with many other writers, um, they kind of defined you know, both in like, bro- a broader sense as far as like, the genre that was evolving and becoming you know more refined, but also like the things that it was going to care about and, and define, and, and what would fall um, under the purview of what science fiction was. And so this includes things like psychology. So mm-hmm. so Campbell was looking for a psychology mm-hmm. or like a science of the mind, you know, from a very early stage. And you know he decides to focus on that, but not on other issues that another another editor might have found
1: equally interesting. Well, one of the things that. Uh when I when I talk about this sort of dramatic structures, there is this sense that you have a really interesting flawed character who is a cheerful pulp writer writing these sort of gloomy far future things, but then also writing uh, "Who Goes There." And I was thinking, even when we were at the session, we were talking about the book yesterday here at WorldCon, and there were a number of people, the younger people in the room, seemed to know Campbell only as the guy who wrote the story that provided right. the basis of the Thing movies, um, mm-hmm. but. There's something about his gaining this power, being empowered by Heinlein and Asimov, and then being bent toward the dark side, basically, during the 40s. And it it follows a very dramatic arc, and it's almost a Shakespearean tragedy. It's almost a five-act story that ends up with his essentially losing control of science fiction.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the, the big uh, sort of X factor in the story is the atomic bomb, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, you know, Campbell's ambitions for the magazine, I mean, nuclear power is a big part of science fiction from the beginning. And, and, you know, stories about the discovery of nuclear power, Mm -hmm. you know, were mainstay of the genre. And so when the atomic bomb becomes a reality, it's like science fiction was right. Science fiction, you know, foresaw, you know, the future, uh, but also makes it impossible to, to write about nuclear power ever again. There has to be some other... Subject that science mm-hmm. fiction can tackle if it's going to maintain its status as a frontier literature, and for Campbell that was the mind because you know he mm-hmm. tried to fail it to get involved with the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. He wanted science fiction to play a role in the war effort, which you know it never really did. But you know for for the for the brain for psychology he didn't need any resources. He just needed Hubbard. He needed you know two men mm-hmm. in a quiet room you know working on this talk therapy, and he was convinced that that was the invention that um, science fiction had been born to produce. I mean, I think a lot of fans and writers thought that there was going to be a great discovery, uh, you know, that would emerge from the pages of Astounding, and,
1: and Campbell thought that Hubbard's ideas uh, mm. were that idea. Andy, you had to invent Campbell as a character, and were you... And, and, and there's more to him than, uh, the, the, than just the folklore of science fiction, but where did your idea of making him into a, a living character come from? Because... If you look at what was written about him in the memoirs of people like Asimov or Lester Del Rey, he's just this brilliant editor. But he did—he never really emerged as anything much more than that. He
2: comes yeah. off—he comes off as sort of a sort of a grotesque, sort of a, <laughs> so, a, a not a round character, but a flat character in James Terrace he, He—he—he's this loud, hectoring, insistent—you know—producer of of. of 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 provocative questions, you know, in these endless conversations that go on and on as people file in and out of his office, and and he's uh, and he's this large, intimidating figure holding forth in bars at at conventions Mm -hmm. and so forth, uh, which is about it. But I got to thinking about him. Uh, I got to thinking about him as an undergrad and as a newlywed. Mm-hmm. I got to thinking about okay, what's the essential if this is going to be a student Campbell and Professor Ryan story? Essentially, this is going to be the student and the the, the, the professor and the pupil, mm-hmm. but the pupil is gonna to presume to know at least as much as the professor. Uh-huh. And at some point the tables are gonna get turned or attempted to get turned. And I and it is not coincidental that I'm coming up on my quarter century mark teaching undergraduates <laughs> <laughs> in writing classes. And I thought, I have been in that office more uh-huh. than once. I have been there as a student as a pupil to my own mentors and professors through the years, including grad school. And I've also been there all too many times (laughs) with the students sitting there, where, you know, the student is like being a great big pain in the neck. Mm. But I also think, oh, I know you very well, (laughs) because I have been that great big pain in the neck. And so, as always with our stories, you know, if they're to have any sort of life at all, as Alec knows writing fiction, if they're to have any sort of life at all, we're ultimately like pouring ourselves in there and thinking, mm-hmm. you know, what would I do and think and react there. And so I had a lot of fun with all those in the office moments, you know, where yeah. where, where where Ryan keeps hoping the conversation has come to an end and now he can get and now he can usher this guy out of his office. But of course, inexorably, you know, they move on to the next. Well, that's thing. the
1: novelty because when you try to think of Campbell as a young person. Nobody ever talked about him that way. I mean, you, no. I mean In doing the research for the book, you, ha- you uncovered stuff I'd never heard about Campbell because all the stuff you heard about him from Asma and Heinlein were exactly this authoritarian, loud-mouthed, uh, controlling, figure-throwing. So trying to imagine him as a younger person must have been challenged for a biographer, even.
3: Well, I was lucky. Uh, I, think I, I think, I don't know if it was luck or something intuitive, but I picked a good subject because there are primary sources about his childhood that are fascinating. I mean, these are his letters. Um, mm-hmm. So Campbell was an incredibly prolific letter writer. I mean, they would go on for many, many pages, and, and toward the end, I mean, they become almost incomprehensible, like, or, or just very dense, you know, with ideas and illusions. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he, uh, after Hubbard, he, he kept working on his form of therapy, um, and one uh, of his uh, methods was to work things out on paper, was talking mm-hmm. about his childhood on paper. And so you find these incredibly emotional letters that he writes to his own father, where he talks about his childhood, talks mm-hmm. about feeling bullied and, and, and neglected, and you know things that, you know, I mean, most people don't ever talk about, and which would otherwise not get recorded. But because this is sort of how he, you know, decided to work through his problems, it becomes this incredible trope of information for someone trying to reconstruct mm-hmm. that period in, in his life.
1: I think that's, well, uh, that's a fascinating kind of recognizing the vulnerability of somebody at that age when you mentioned that business about his father it reminded me of uh, an essay which I'm sure you've read Andy that Theodore Sturgeon wrote late in life called Argyle about his Mm -hmm. stepfather Mm -hmm. who just detested his writing and Mm -hmm. had no respect for it at all and there's one heartbreaking letter where he Mm -hmm. says in in italics I write beautifully I know I write beautifully why can't you Mm -hmm. (laughs) respect me for it at least
2: Mm -hmm. that's right
1: yeah, there's, there's a great letter from uh, Campbell to his father,
3: uh, probably in, like the mid '50s, you know, where he um, basically like says. You know, I'm, I'm generally uh, regarded as the man who brought science fiction, you know, uh, and made it a respectable literary genre. You know, mm-hmm. he lists accomplishments. He says, I have the years of people at Bell Labs, at GE, you know, and, um, you know, this, this resume. And, and he says, but you've never respected, you know, what I've done. And this mm-hmm. is at a point where, you know, Campbell's in his late 40s. So it's still, it's extraordinary to find that kind of uh, letter at that stage.
2: And and here I think we reach something that is uh, obviously a lot larger than just Campbell and a lot larger than than Golden Age SF. I've spent a lot of time through the years um, thinking about influence, uh, thinking about who uh, within the field, who are my great influences, you know, to what extent... Am I writing material that Campbell and his cohort would recognize? To what extent am I writing in direct response to them? Mm-hmm. You know, and to what extent is this the same field? Uh, I spent a lot of time teaching the Clarions and, and mentoring younger writers through SIFWA and other ways, and I just love meeting the newcomers all the time. You know, they are—they are not only the future of the field; they are the present mm-hmm. of the field, as I'm concerned, and. Uh more than once, they have pointed out to me that for the for them Campbell is is perhaps less even than the author of Who Goes There. That John Carpenter, who directed the thing, is a far bigger influence on them than what's his name, you know, that I'm always on about. And for them, you know, if they have any awareness of the history of the field and the magazines and the anthologies it picks up somewhere in the late 60s with <laughs> right. Delaney, Allison, uh, Le Guin, and Tiptree. But for many, it picks up with the cyberpunk movement, uh, or it picks up even more recently, you know, with, with like Greg Egan or somebody. Well, or, you, and, and, yeah. and so, and so I, I think a lot about this, but I think that one thing that uh, I think I was trying to get at in my story and that I think is still of use to all my students and all these young people to think about is who your influences are who are you in Mm -hmm. conversation with Uh, because i think you're always in conversation with someone and often we are surprised to find out just of what long duration that conversation has been but in fact you know this back and forth has been going on for generations before we came along. For some writers, that is a daunting thing, and it shuts them down. I was one of those for whom it was always a great inspiration. Oh, good! I am part in this part of this great give and take that goes back, you know, for, for many years. Well,
1: Ursula Le Guin famously said that you can't write a good science fiction story if you've never read any science fiction, and you can't write a good science fiction story if you've never read anything but science. fiction. <laughs> yes. Uh, and when you start getting to to your generation and even younger writers, of which there are only a few, um, the, 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 that conversation broadens out way beyond science fiction. I mean, you, yes. remember, you've written stories with Flannery O'Connor and Flora well, Neal Hurston. I was, I was and, just
2: making a list here to, oh. to, to, to to finish the thought. It just seems that the the conflicts that Campbell had with his father the conflicts that Campbell's great outlier writer of the Golden Era, uh, Sturgeon, had with his own stepfather yeah. and and often Campbell was laying down the law about the rules of writing as far as he saw it and people would always say what about Sturgeon mm-hmm. and he'd say never mind Sturgeon Sturgeon is himself <laughs> Sturgeon <laughs> writes Sturgeon stories he was the great exception but when but this anxiety they feel about the previous generation is extremely relevant to me and my own parents yeah. is extremely relevant to all my students and all the young writers you know what is worth preserving? What is worth repudiating? Mm-hmm. You know, How do you negotiate that? And this is not only a very personal thing, but it's a thing that all the genres have to work through, mm-hmm. it seems to me, and all the arts and, and, and so forth. But yes, you, I, I was just looking at the, at the table of contents uh-huh. of my, my new collection that's coming out in November. It's going to debut at, at World Fantasy, An Agent of Utopia, New and Selected Stories so here I've got this Campbell story oh, yeah. okay. uh, uh, it's not in the book it's in analog it's too new mm. but in the book are stories in which Flannery O'Connor is a character Thomas Moore is a character mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston is a character I've got stories that are riffs on J.R.R. Tolkien, Steven Spielberg, Hurston again, Haywire, Matt McCormick, who uh-huh. the Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is one of the titles. Is Senator Bilbo. Uh, Senator Bilbo is well, in he's there. He was a real character. Uh, yes, Harry Houdini is in the book. So, so I'm constantly writing about you know those who have gone before, you so, know, and riffing on writers. And to me, Campbell is part of this. Part of this for me now, quarter century tradition of doing this stuff. I, before somebody corrects
1: me or, or, or writes in or something, when I said Senator Bilbo is a real person, I didn't mean
2: Bilbo Baggins. There was a Senator Bilbo <laughs> There was indeed. The, the infamously racist, demagogue, U.S. Senator from the state of Mississippi uh, who happened to be named Theodore Bilbo. <laughs> uh, and so I like re-envision him as a halfling <laughs> so far in this story. Uh, but but there you go. There you know I I am from I am a a middle aged white guy from rural South Carolina. I was raised to believe that Senator Strom Thurmond, a friend of the family, was a heroic and noble figure whom I should emulate in every way of life. Needless to say, I no longer believe that. You know, I teach at a university that's like forty percent non-white and good. And good, I'm glad of that. You know. Uh, But I am conscious all the time about, you know, the uh, literal and metaphorical Confederate statues that litter my landscape Mm -hmm. and my mental landscape and how I, you know, uh, of all that stuff, what is there that I can carry forward into what remains of me in the 21st century? And this is the reason I keep writing about this stuff.
1: But in a sense, I think Alex's book is doing something similar. It's not quite as dramatic as Confederate statuary, but a lot of the iconic nature of... We haven't talked much about Asimov, but you know, you're, you're very open about the fact that Asimov was rotten toward women pretty much his whole life.
3: Right, and this is something that I, I find fascinating because... Um you know, whenever I talk about Asimov in public, I do a reading or, or discuss the book, and I mention the fact that he, you know, he groped women at conventions, mm-hmm. the entire room just kind of nods. You know, it's an open secret within science fiction uh, fandom, I think, it's common knowledge. Uh-huh. And everyone, you know, I, I, I talk to people, and whenever people say, oh, I have a great Asimov story, it's usually about him touching someone's body, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that I had to work through, you know, in terms of uh, how to treat it in the book and, you know, how it made me feel about Asimov, who obviously is a character, a person who means a lot to me and means a lot to uh, a lot of writers. But, um, you know, honestly, uh, you know, you could, you could say that, you know, this was a different time, which some people have said to me, but honestly, his behavior was unusual even by, by those standards. And I think, um, you know, I'm actually very curious about what the reception will
1: be to that aspect of the story. I mean, I'm very curious as to what the reaction is going to be to Hubbard, who is clearly the villain of the piece, and apparently more of a con man than even I suspected. And I didn't realize the extent to which Campbell bought into some of Hubbard's self-aggrandizing anecdotes about his wartime experiences and his being a sailor and all this sort of well, also, Heinlein bought into those stories, too. And, oh, yeah. and this,
3: to me, is like even more interesting. I mean, Campbell was not that hard to mislead. Campbell never <laughs> was never exposed the military. Yeah.
2: Right. I ask not your Hieronymus, <laughs> sir. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
3: But, but, you know, I mean, Heinlein was a graduate of Annapolis. You know, he, he was he was a naval officer, right? Mm-hmm. And and he, for, until he died, he, he thought of Hubbard as a war hero. And, and to me, that gets us something about Hubbard, you know, how convincing he was. Yeah. And how impressive he was. Because um, the one thing you get when you know, look at memoirs from the period or what people say about him is that he impressed... Everyone he met. He impressed Campbell deeply. Mm-hmm. He impressed Heinlein deeply as uh, personality. And, um, you know, he, he was, you know, a sociopath. I think, you know, he, he was a terrible person, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, you know, you can't
1: underrate his impact and his importance to the people that he, uh, he interacted with. But one of the things that does come out, uh, because this obviously is the question, is why is Hubbard here? Because you have three people who are, whatever their personal flaws, in, involved in the project of inventing modern science fiction or making science fiction grow up out of its pulp, Hubbard had no interest in science fiction at all until it became a market for him. He just he'd been writing for the Western pulps. Right, that's about. very
3: true. Uh, so people always ask, you know. So I understand Campbell asked him off fine line, but why is Hubbard in your, yeah. your subtitle? And, and you know, to me, that's like two questions. One is, does uh, Hubbard deserve to be named in the same you know breath as these other writers? And was he a good writer? Was, was his stuff worth reading? And um, you know, answer the first question is that absolutely he is worth including in any history of science fiction, especially one about Campbell. Mm. Uh, because Campbell and Hubbard uh, worked so uh, intimately together for, for so many years, um, Campbell never got over their partnership. I mean, they only worked together on Dianetics for a couple of years, but, you know, it deeply shaped what Campbell did after that. You know, I always say that I think Hubbard was more important to Campbell than any other writer except for Heinlein, and that includes Mm Asimov. He occupied more of Hubbard's, or more of Campbell's, like inner life than almost anybody else. Um, So you can't tell Campbell's story certainly without talking about Hubbard um, and the impact he had on on that community, just as as a force of nature. Uh, as far as writing, you know, I, I've read more of it probably than anybody who is not actually a Scientologist. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I always talk about Sturgeon's Law, which is that, you know, 90% of everything is crud. And that's true of Hubbard's writing, but, you know, this is a guy here with 4 million words of fiction. And if 10% of that stuff is decent, then, you know, that's that's not a, not a bad body of work. There, there are one or two stories mm-hmm. that I've read of Hubbard's that I think are pretty good. And and I do think that if Hubbard's career somehow had gone differently, uh, if Scientology had never happened, I don't think he would be uh, mentioned in the first tier of science fiction writers with you know Asimov and, and Heinlein. Mm-hmm. But there's like another tier of people like A. E. Van Vogt and mm-hmm. Del Sprague de Camp and Eric Frank Russell. Eric Frank Russell, who I think uh, you know, Hubbard fits very neatly into that category. Mm-hmm. I think there there are a few novels that people would still read fondly today. And I think um, because of Hubbard's Complicated afterlife, there, there is like a Hubbard shaped hole in the history of science fiction that, uh-huh. that I've tried yeah. to fill.
1: Uh-huh. There's another figure that I think is fascinating that uh, that I mentioned, I, th- I was thinking of Eric Frank Russell, but before there was Hubbard, there was Charles Fort. And Charles Fort seems yes. to have really impressed people like uh, yes. Campbell and, and, and certainly Russell. And there were all these sort of secret master stories in the 30s and 40s uh-huh. that never really went away, and Heinlein wrote a couple of those.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, Orland Tremaine, who was the editor of Astounding Before Campbell, published a huge excerpt from Charles Ford's book, Low, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Before Campbell Came on the Scene. So, you know, he's part of that conversation, you know, and um, Campbell, uh, his, his attitude towards Ford is very interesting. He, he reviews one of Ford's books in Astounding mm-hmm. and says, number one, there are a ton of story ideas here. He recommends yes. it to science mm-hmm. fiction writers yes. just to get plot uh, ideas. But he says that he thinks Ford undermines his case by attacking orthodox science too harshly, <laughs> which anticipates Campbell's career. I mean, this is what Campbell did. He, he was trying to make you know, what I think in some ways are valid points about you know, what is science, what, what is a valid uh, subject of scientific inquiry. You know, does that include psychic powers? Does it include mm-hmm. clairvoyance? Does it include uh, you know, anti-gravity? But by attacking, you know, the establishment so harshly, he made it impossible for anyone to, you know, actually talk seriously about these subjects for for a long time. And I think, you know, in, in Fort, he kind of had a little preview
2: of what his career would look like, you know, ten or twenty years down the line. The we, uh, one of my influences now now departed sadly. Thomas Dish wrote a, 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 a critical book that he was pilloried for. The dreams mm-hmm. our stuff is made of. Uh, that was, made a deep impression on me. Uh, it's this this fine two hundred page rant about the genre, mm. but he makes a case there that we that we have sadly de-emphasized in all our histories the extent to which you know the con artist, the mountebank, mm. the liar, you know, the is, uh, the, the the tall tale, uh, the the confidence man is is like this this central. Part of the history of science fiction, right. mm-hmm. and and certainly Hubbard would fit right in there in that, and so would Campbell's contemporary as an editor, Ray Palmer, who recently it was so yeah. of his own biography, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Charles Fort would fit in there, I mm-hmm. think, because Fort was like. Both obsessive about totting up all this anomalous data, and also extremely tongue in cheek about you know <laughs> supposed explanations for all these things and so forth. So there's a lot of game playing there um, that that I think we we, uh, we 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 don't often in our in when we're when we're talking about the legacy of science fiction. I think Dish is one of the few that like. I, pointed that out as a thread, you know, it was a rather robust
1: thread. He traced it
2: back to to Edgar Allan
1: Poe and the the, the stories of hoaxes and the the one hoax. And he he makes a very interesting argument that from American science fiction, uh, probably should be traced to Poe because of that trickster tradition, rather than to Mary Shelley, which is where you trace British science fiction.
2: But but I've had talks with some veteran figures... Including probably you, Gary, through the years mm-hmm. about all the people we have met on the science fiction circuit who like sort of have reinvented themselves mm-hmm. or tell whole spurious biographies about themselves that don't quite check yeah. out when you go when you go checking. And 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 I think this too is part of this like long tradition. You know, there's there's, some, there's something of the uh, there's something of the illusionist in yeah. in a lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy.
1: Well, one of the sources you had to look... You had to use this source because he's there, and that's Sam Moskowitz. And nobody knows how reliable most of his scholarship is because when people have gone back and done... Redone the research that he reported on, they find out that he just created entire incidents in order to bridge one part of a person's life on another.
3: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, Moskowitz is an interesting case of, again, kind of the fan, writing for fans. Yeah. Uh, And, I mean, obviously a tremendous resource. No one else has, like... Talked about this period in that kind of detail, and you know, so I, I couldn't have written those sections of the book without him. But you look at something like the account of the first Worldcon, which is you know this like pivotal you know yeah. episode. You know, it's a great set piece, but you know there are many different versions of what actually happened there. The Moskowitz provides one account, but if you look at accounts from the Futurians who were excluded from the convention, look at Asimov's account of what happened. You have to kind of like you know triangulate between these
1: sources and figure out what you know seems like the most plausible version. And the 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 self inflation of those stories is reflected in, I guess, Moskowitz's famous account of that, which was called the Immortal Storm, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Great Exclusion. <laughs> this is this is a group of three surly teenagers keeping another group of three surly teenagers from getting into an elevator. It's not The Immortal Storm. Um, I, mean, I, I, I read that book cover to cover. You know, I, I
0: had to. Uh, you're right. You're right. You
3: no, know, it, it's, it's. I mean, one thing that I you know am struck by reading that book is how little things have changed. I, I think book is, it's fascinating just as a record of these um, kind of. Tempest in a teapot, uh, you know, controversies within fandom yeah. that unfold over the course of months and mimeograph fanzines, you know, and these days they're on Twitter, they're on Reddit, you know, the uh, the, the
1: dynamics there, the trolling has, has stayed the same. You mentioned one of the one of who would have been a troll was was Walheim. Apparently his fanzines were just vicious.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, he fits the profile of Troll perfectly.
1: And it's funny Mm -hmm. because, obviously, he he grows
3: up to become, like, one of the major figures in science fiction in his own right. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, back then, yeah, he he enjoyed, you know, uh, stirring the pot. He enjoyed breaking up clubs. He enjoyed Mm -hmm. causing trouble. And and I think you you kind of see that same uh, impulse today.
0: Do you think, having spent all this time researching, all this time reading, that the reputations of the parties, whether they're changed somewhat or not, Actually, hold up over time. Do you think that Campbell remains the greatest editor in the history of science fiction? That's a good question.
3: Um, I mean, I think uh, I think Campbell's importance, his historical importance, is like very hard to deny. I think um, you know what we think of as science fiction would look utterly different uh, if it weren't for for his his presence at the right time in the right place. Um, you know, as far as reputations go, I, I will say um, I think Heinlein is. As good or better as he is said to be, at least for the period uh, 1939 to 1955, or Mm -hmm. whatever you want to measure it. You know, I mean, I read read a lot of stuff. I read a lot of stories from that period, and and he was the best. He he was head and shoulders to me above anybody else working during that time. Mm -hmm. Asimov uh, was not. uh, And this is one thing I was kind of surprised by. If you read Asimov's stories from, you know, the period before the war, you can make a pretty strong case that Hubbard was the stronger writer. Uh, you know, Hubbard had produced uh, stories like Final Blackout and Death's Deputy, and his un- unknown, you know, uh, novels that um, were in some ways better written and more interesting than than what Asimov was doing at the same time. And I think it took Asimov like another five or six years to get to the point where uh, he was producing work on that level. Yeah. So you know,
1: that was that was surprising to me. Well, Asimov was never a very interesting writer, sentence by sentence, and he didn't pretend to be. I mean, he talked about what he called transparent style. He didn't. He didn't want to write prose. He didn't want to write graceful sentences. He wanted to be as clear as possible, which is great for a science writer, which is why he probably was our, the was the best science writer of the of the 20th century. Uh, but it, I think it damaged his science fiction. I mean, the robot stories are they're like crossword puzzles. They're clever. Uh, They're ingenious, they're well worked out, but you don't remember any of the characters in them at all. Well, there are a couple of things,
3: uh, you know, so so, um, Asimov famously says he was sort of like a slow learner, it took him nine submissions to break Mm -hmm. into, astounding, whereas Heinlein sold his very first story, right? But, uh, you know, two things to keep in mind is that Asimov was 19 years old when he he Mm -hmm. began submitting stories, um, and he was 10 years younger than uh, Campbell or Heinlein at that time. And, uh, you know, Heinlein had already written an entire novel, us, the Living, which he uh, wrote and couldn't sell and kind of threw away. And so by the time he submitted his first story to Campbell, he'd gotten a lot of these bad habits out of his system, and he Mm -hmm. wrote a much stronger story uh, than he would have otherwise. Asimov submitted his very first effort. He submitted the very first story he ever wrote to to Campbell, and it took him nine tries uh, to to break through, but he was still very young, Mm -hmm. and and kind of learning uh, in public, you know, with Campbell as his editor, you know, which was a a very interesting situation. Um, But, uh, you know, the other thing about Asimov that I find very interesting is how much uh, Campbell contributed to those stories uh, when it came to like the, the basic ideas that Asimov was was using and, and mm-hmm. kind of became famous for, you know, ideas like the three laws of robotics. Uh, you know, that was Campbell's contribution. He he laid them out for Asimov one day in his office, and, and Asimov basically used them word for word. Uh, psychohistory. Uh, you know, Asimov's initial idea for the Foundation, uh, you know, that story Foundation, didn't really include the. Concept of psychohistory, and this is an idea that Campbell had been developing with people Mm -hmm. like Jack Williamson, and um, he gave it to Asimov, and Asimov ended up being an excellent vehicle for Mm -hmm. these ideas. But you take Campbell's contributions out of uh, the equation, or even the story Nightfall. You know, the story Nightfall, which you know was voted the greatest science fiction Mm -hmm. story of all time. You know, that was Campbell's premise, and and Asimov did the hard work of actually writing them up. But uh, you know, for for a period of you know several years at the beginning, he was. Acting as a conduit for Campbell's
1: idea, and Campbell showed Asimov the passage from Emerson. I guess was not about a, people saw the stars only once. He in
2: kind of quoted it to him, I think, and Asimov claimed he could never actually find That's right. it. Oh, really? Right. Yes, yeah, he yeah. never actually read the essay. Oh, uh, yeah, but he said, yeah, he gave he gave
3: uh, uh, Asimov this uh, Emerson quote about what would happen if uh, the stars came out only once, you know, every thousand years. And He said, I think people would go mad. Uh, and he said, write that story. And obviously, there's more to Nightfall than that premise. But you know, again, it's that impetus, that, that sort of seed that, that Campbell planted, that Asimov needed to do his best work at that period.
2: But I, I think, I think, uh, for a few years there, yes, uh, Campbell was was absolutely central, and and laid down tracks that countless others have followed in ever since. Mm-hmm. But even in his own time, when you come into the 50s, you have like like Horace Gold and Anthony Boucher coming hmm. along. You have like... Uh, uh, you have Fred Pohl editing the Star anthologies. Then later you have Seely Goldsmith coming in with Fantastic and mm-hmm. finding Le Guin and like recruit and bringing Fritz Leiber out of retirement and so forth. And 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 much later there are so, and, and there are other really long time and, and editors who came along after Campbell. Who like have had decades long influences on the field? Alan mm-hmm. who who is here this this weekend, is one of these. Through, talking through countless magazines right. and anthologies, uh, Gardner Dozois, who recently uh, died, whose whose
1: career was almost exactly as long as Campbell. Yes, exactly.
2: Years. And and for, for many many years with anthologies, with a long run at Asimov's magazine. You know, these are like incredibly influential and incredibly nurturing of new writers, and I am a product of that. Um, uh, Campbell died in 71, and the field would have long since ground to a halt Mm -hmm. if it were not for other visionary, long term editors who have come along, and some remarkable folks who have done influential editing not as prolifically, but that you can point to, like Ellison's Dangerous Visions Mm -hmm. anthology. Much more recently, Cherie uh, Renee Thomas's Dark Matter anthologies, which like oh, sort great. of sort of lassoed, uh, you know, a whole genre that had been staring at us that we hadn't realized, you know, existed in the first. Mm, place. Lisa Yasek has a Lisa, coming yes, out next yes, month on women science. Yes, History. exactly. Lisa's doing doing wonderful work. So so, um, the story of science fiction editing. Yes, Campbell is this mighty figure. But he died in what seventy one or so. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the every we've we've got a we've got a, you know, lifetime since during right. which all these editors have come along, and 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 they are like Campbell in that they are visionary, they are dedicated to the genre, they love nurturing new writers, mm-hmm. but but in terms of personality, in terms of that you know, sort of agenda. You know, that, that that he's pushing, I think they go in many different directions. I think one of the questions of that.
1: that comes up in, in, toward the end of Alex' book is, is when did Campbell lose his influence? There's one history of science fiction, I think it's Adam Roberts, who, which basically flatly says that Campbell's influence stopped in 1950 when the magazine of fantasy and science fiction started. Because suddenly there was a market for uh, the, the Theodore Sturgeons or the Kip Reeds or the Carol Imschwillers or the people, or, or C.S. Lewis or, or, for heaven's sake, Borges was first published the United States, in a mystery magazine, I think. Uh, but the once fantasy and science fiction was there, and then Galaxy, uh, that uh, the the Campbell's influence effectively was at an end. And yet he continued running the magazine for twenty years. I mean, Campbell's story uh, to me is inseparable from the
3: timing, right? So, so Campbell, if you want to say his influence lasted for for ten years or for mm-hmm. five years, you know, but those years include a point at which you could argue that science fiction entered the mainstream. You could say it happened after the war, and mm-hmm. it happened after Hiroshima, but there's a point where the world was kind of interested in science fiction. And and it's that period, that little window of time, that I think shapes what people still think of when they, they think of science fiction today. I think, you know, sort of in the modern mm-hmm. culture, when you think of science fiction, we're thinking about things that Campbell was the first or among the first to really develop. And since then, there have been editors who have been tremendously influential within science fiction. But you know, editing science fiction for science fiction readers—you uh, mm-hmm. know—kind of in this separate world that has developed and grown in ways that, in some ways, haven't really entered the mainstream. Uh,
1: at least not for a lot of uh, of readers and viewers. Well, you could you, okay, you could say that he grew a generation of science fiction readers who were reading it in a different way than the pulp readers had read. In other words, by the time Campbell had had an influence in the field for ten years. Uh, it was no longer a field of Doc Smith and Edgar Rice Burroughs. It was a field of Heinlein and Asimov, which does, I'm sure it changed the way people read the field. And especially with Heinlein, the fiction became a lot more sophisticated and a lot more interesting. Yeah, and and even someone like Van Vogt,
3: you know, the the, the strangeness and the weirdness of that Mm -hmm. that stuff, you know, I mean, it it was a development that, you know, took decades to to pan out, I think. Um, And and so all these things are kind of there in utero, you know, uh, in, in the astounding of that period.
0: Okay. Well, we're getting towards the end of our our hour, so it might be worth pointing out that, uh, before we say thank you, that Astounding by Alec Navalny will be in stores in October from HarperCollins? October 23rd. That An Agent of Utopia by Andy Duncan uh, from Small Beer Press will be out in October as well, and that New Frontiers of the Mind can be read in Astounding magazine uh, and analog uh, at the moment. But uh, you know, so for, for the moment, thank you both gentlemen for making the time to talk to us. It's been really, really interesting. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. Thank, thanks for having us. We'll do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs>